I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, and we will be in John chapter 6. Another familiar passage of Scripture, one that we've been talking about or singing about rather already, but we'll begin reading in verse 16 of chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help again to study your word correctly, to see what it is that we are to understand from it. And to seek your help in obeying what is there for us to be obedient to. We thank you for this privilege. We thank you for the ability to do it together. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, Jesus walking on the water is another one of the miracles that we are more familiar with. And in each of the accounts, there are three of them. We talked last week about the feeding of the 5,000 being the only miracle that we see in all four Gospels. Well, walking on the water, we see in three of those four Gospels. And each of those three times, it is in close connection with the previous miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. As if they are to be studied uh, together. They happen actually on the same day. One that night, one earlier that day. And both Mark and John actually leave out what some may think would be the best part. Where Peter walks on the water with Jesus. John doesn't mention this. We read the account. It wasn't there. But of the three accounts, it's John's that is the most compressed. In other words, his is the shortest. If you've got one of these... uh, parallel Bibles where you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all lined up, uh, you would be able to see that the word count is much shorter with John's as opposed to the others. And this miracle is private in comparison with the feeding of the 5,000. The whole multitude, 20,000 people or so were witness to that, but only the 12 are witness to this miracle in the night where Jesus Walks on the water and scares them uh, very much until they know who it is. Now, if we backed up a verse to where we left off last time, at the end of his feeding of the 5,000, as John explains to us, he perceived that they wanted to take him by force and make him a king. And it was on that that he decides to leave and again goes to the mountain by himself. Now, if we were to go to Mark and Luke to fill in a bit more information that John does not give us. Before Jesus left, he told his disciples to get into a boat and head across the lake. So 
Everybody's fed. Baskets are collected. Jesus tells his disciples, you, you go on. Now's the time. Get in the boat and go, and I will come behind you. And then somehow, as the other two gospel writers tell us, Jesus dismissed the crowd. And they went to their homes, and he went to the mountain. Now, if you feature this, this multitude was about to take him by force and make him a king. So what in the world he said to them to convince them it was in their best interest to go home while he sneaks away to go pray after having already told his disciples to get away? I wish I would have known how that worked, what he said and how he said it. But it seemed to change the entire mood of the people. It would pick up the next day. They'd be looking for him about the same place and find out that he's gone, chase him down again. But that's what happens. And I guess it'd be a good time to ask a question in passing. Why all this prayer? And we're going to see a lot more of this as we move along. But he went to pray before and now that he's fed them and they're ready to make him a king, he goes to pray again as if to flee the scene. And, of course, we're not told exactly. But maybe it has something to do with the fact that he doesn't like people. Would that be it? No. He loves people. That's why he's here, to die for them in their place. Uh, the same Jesus, we, we like the, the pictures and needlepoint and the passages that talk about him with the child on his knee. He doesn't have a problem with people. But perhaps he has a problem with their wanting him to be something he's not here to be. And just as he'd gone into the wilderness for 40 days to prepare for this ministry, maybe this is incremental maintenance when the temptation comes to be a king of a different sort and perhaps bypass that cup of wrath that he's going to actually ask his father, is there any way that this could pass? Well, that's because he's systematically, routinely in connection with his father to make sure he's doing exactly what he's sent here to do. Maybe that's why he does. Now we get to verse 16, it's evening, disciples get into the boat down at the shore, they start across to Capernaum, it was now dark, Jesus had not yet come, the sea became rough because a strong wind had blown. So why John tells us that Jesus hadn't come to them yet, we don't know. It's almost as if he's got a piece of information in his mind that he's explaining, but um, it's incomplete, we don't know what he doesn't know and we don't get a lot of help from the others as well because this is different from theirs it's almost and this might be compatible though we don't know that Jesus told his disciples you go on ahead I'm right behind you or perhaps or perhaps you get ready to go and you wait on me or perhaps you wait on me but until a certain time because the other gospels say that when it was night, Jesus was alone. And we read from John that they got in the boat and left. So he hadn't come yet. Was he supposed to? Or had he told them something different? We'll have to ask the disciples or Jesus when we meet them face to face. But what is said here about this storm and what David had mentioned earlier uh, has everything to do with... Uh, an understanding of the topo in the area, the topographical uh, mountains, valleys, the 
body of water, a grand body of water in the Mediterranean Sea, short distance between them. And the fact that the Sea of Galilee sits almost 700 feet below sea level. So it's a hole in the ground. Uh, the Dead Sea's much lower, uh, but this would a- account for the way that the weather can get quite interesting. Cool air from the southeastern tablelands, as they're referred to, can rush in to displace the warm, humid air over the lake, churning up the water in an unpredictable squall. Now, best thing I know to describe this is any of you that spent much time at the beach. Uh, you may be familiar with something that happens normally on a blue sky day. Uh, you get up in the morning, it's somewhat calm. Uh, you take your kids out to the beach, and by the time lunchtime arrives, or a little after, it's blown your umbrella over and, and just about everything else. As the land heats up, that air rises, and it begins to vacuum air off the shore, actually onto the shore. But then if you go back out after dinner, it's calm for a little bit. And if you go back later than that, you'll find that it's reversed. As the land is cooled off, the, the water's actually warmer now, and it's it's humid, so it, it is lighter and it rises, and the air from the land goes and takes its place. You've got the wind at your back. They call this a sea breeze effect. Not unlike what's going on here, but the way the valley funnels the air, uh, it can become very bumpy very quick, uh, almost without a moment's notice. Now, this wouldn't have taken some of these disciples by surprise. A third of them are professional fishermen by trade. And we read in other passages where some of the other disciples would go fishing with them too. So these Galileans, as most of them are, spent much of their lives in, around, or on that body of water. So they were more than familiar with the weather patterns, possible windstorms, and the fact that we read that they had made it three or four miles across the Sea of Galilee in a contrary wind shows that they know how to handle a boat. That was hard work. And they seem to be making pretty good headway. However, in verse 19, it's clear that the wind and the waves were not what they were afraid of. And that's something we'll pick up here in a moment when we begin to apply this, find out what this means and where do we fit in all that we're reading here when they had rowed about three or four miles they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat and they were frightened so big waves big deal a ghost walking on the water toward them big deal this was something that terrified them as it would us Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There are psalms that describe the steps of this almost meticulously, including at the end, and taking you or the people to their destination, almost as if this is a part of the miracle, that immediately they're gone from in the middle to where they intended to go as if nothing had happened. Or the seas became flat and it took them no time compared to the time it took them to get to the middle. Mark and Matthew tell us the disciples thought that Jesus was a 
phantasma would be the, the Greek word for that. A phantom. You see that twice. And the other is in the other gospel account of this. So what do we make of it? This is a short passage of scripture. It's not very complicated. We run our way through it trying to understand what it means. But this short account, something that takes place in the night, the night of the day that 20,000 people or so were fed miraculously, and then the night before Jesus would claim to be the bread of life. So there's a lot going on. Their schedules are, are very crammed. And to think that they would lose sleep in the night, and Jesus is away, is he praying, what's going on here? And right in the middle, you've got this story that seems to be just for the disciples. So where do we fit in all this? Well, I will admit I struggled with trying to make points out of this short story. Where, where, where do we fit? What is this saying to us? Because at one point you might want to look at it and say, well, these are the disciples. It meant a lot to them. We see what happens. Jesus is God's son. It doesn't make a big surprise to us that he could command the waves or that he could walk on the water. What is John trying to tell us? It's probably the better way to get at it. And where does this fit in his whole book and with the themes that he's been using? Because... He didn't tell us this story the same way that Mark and Luke did. Their story is different. And some of the parts that we would think most interesting, he seems to leave out as if to make sure that we don't spend all the sermons on Peter and his walking on the water. Make some of the sermons about Jesus and being a ghost and scaring them half to death and then telling them not to be. What does that mean? Because that seems to be what he's focused on. If we're looking for the drama in this passage, I think it has to do with fear. And if we're looking at fear in this passage, it happens to do with disciples who are very afraid by the miracle itself. What are they afraid about? Something that happened accidentally as we might look at it? No, something that happened very purposefully. Jesus, at some point, stopped praying and got on the water and walked for the specific purpose to scare his disciples they're scared by the miracle and then the miracle worker tells them not to be scared so we've got something going on here we just need to figure out what it means so this has everything to do with seeing Jesus and specifically in a way that the disciples had never seen him before so maybe that's the same with us maybe this will show us a nuance about Jesus that we haven't seen before. So let's take the dramatic parts of this. It's about half of it. And then ask questions of these things. Uh, and from a personal perspective. The first that sets up the story. And from a literary perspective. John is doing a great job of building the, the setting. And building the tension. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. That's probably the first note. Hey, what's going to happen? It's dark now. And Jesus hasn't come. Where is Jesus? I don't know about you. And at this point, the disciples were in the boat in the water. I don't spend a lot of time in the water after dark. I don't know if you do. Maybe you like that. I don't like that. Maybe in a pool with some lights in it. 
and some lights around the pool. But I don't even like to be in the pool in the dark. And what's worse is being in water that's not clear enough to be able to see the rest of you. Your feet or your legs. Um, let me tell you about a, a situation. Uh, this would have been a few years ago. But in Virginia, uh, river fishing. Me and a few buddies. And you can wade parts of the Dan River. Parts of it you can't. Parts of it you can and they had taken out a specific dam, which meant that you could go further, uh, the fish would run further up the river uh, to a place where they would stop. And in the summer, uh, when enough rain would fall to churn the water up, that would turn on the catfish bite. I don't particularly consider catfish a game fish, but you've got buddies that want to go. And if you know what you're doing, you can catch a bunch of them. And we'd stand up against this dam and toss the live minnows into the water that stirs. Well, it worked great. And I rode with some guys, which I generally don't like to do. Because that limits my options, right? So by the time the sun's getting low, I start getting my stuff together and I'm going to walk out of the river. We're in about our waist. And you don't need waders. The water's warm. Works best, though, if you wear jeans because you can't see in this muddy water. And even something like a little piece of seaweed that goes across your leg can let everybody know um, how anxious you are to be standing in water and not know where your feet are. Plus, there's holes and you can fall down. I'd already gotten everything wet, stepped in a hole. So I get all my stuff and I'm headed out. The other two guys, where are you going? I'm going out. Why? It's getting dark. They're like, well, it gets better when it's dark. We're going to stay. Have a party. I'm going out. So I sat on a rock and watched them in the dark catch a bunch of fish. And they finally came out. I think I'd killed a dozen mosquitoes. It was, it was awful. And I, I called Corey, didn't I? I said, I'm never going fishing again with Paul Williams and not drive. Because he's crazy and I'm not. The guy was a professional bull rider at one spot things don't scare him but i'm not going to do it there's something about the darkness that just tends to magnify sounds and sights and things that are going on just i would think that this would be what they would be afraid of but that wasn't what they were afraid of not yet and john has already employed epic terms of light versus darkness it was in his introduction as to who Jesus was and in such a way he's described him as this uh, light of the world coming into the world of darkness to push back the darkness the darkness won't overcome him but the darkness doesn't understand him yet they don't comprehend him we've already seen that much and we do know and not to over spiritualize everything, it was nighttime. And the reason why it was dark that night is because the sun was behind the planet at that time of day. So, yes, there's physical darkness, but John has been giving us these epic themes of light versus darkness as far as uh, ignorance or evil, sinfulness in our hearts. So, let's make sure we don't lose all of those things, things that are true about Jesus. And things that this miracle might have a purpose in. You wouldn't walk on the water in front of the disciples to scare them in the daytime. You do that in the nighttime. 
So to me, this backdrop of the story here, I don't know anything more frightening than spiritually speaking, it's dark. And Jesus is not with you. That's scary. They're not afraid yet. So here's the first point. Sometimes we're not afraid when we should be. How many times have we ever been in one of the worst situations of our life but walked in it in complete naivete? We don't know any better. Well, that's just the thing. Verse 19 of the third chapter, talking to Nicodemus, Jesus says, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. That's what he came to save us from. That's where we're comfortable. We like it better that way, spiritually speaking. I don't like it standing in a river in the dark. But there are plenty of things in my heart, in my head, that are much darker than Jesus would want them to be. That's why he came to save me from things that I don't even know are wrong. That's what's going on. Then we read, the sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. Now, I'm scheduled uh, to do a sit-down question and answer next week with our middle school youth group. And they've been writing questions ahead of time. Because I told them, you'll get better answers if I get the questions with enough time to study. One of the questions I've already seen is, why does God send hurricanes? That's going to be a good question. And there's different ways you could approach that. Is it possible he could send one in judgment? Yes. Is it possible that they're just part of a fallen world, much like anything else, viruses or... Any type of things that go wrong with our... There's much about this world that doesn't work like it's supposed to. Is he in control of those hurricanes? Or is he like some of our founding fathers said, it's more like a clock he just wound up and then walked off and let it do what it does. Well, these are big, important questions. But all through the scripture, one thing is clear. Driving wind and a tossed sea are descriptive of chaos and disorder. Every time we see it. It's never considered to be a good thing. Now I do like standing on the beach and watching a a large set of waves rolling in. It's a magnificent display of of power. You stay out of that though. Wouldn't take my kayak into it. It's bigger than I am. So there's some awe that comes along with it. But this description of of waves and a a tossed sea chaos disorder it's not unlike the description of earth before jesus began to speak creation into existence when it was all void and darkness again was on the face of the deep and he began to move on the waters and to create order out of chaos he does this through his work of redemption as well right our, our, our hearts are chaotically sinful. We can't know them. They're desperately wicked. He has come to give us His righteousness in trade. So then out of this darkness, Jesus' absence, the wind and the waves have become a problem. Then they see Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. Now they're afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of Jesus. Disciples were not to be said to be afraid until after they saw Jesus. And think our way through this. Do they know who he is or do they not know who he is? 
They don't know who he is. That's why it's frightening. They think he's a ghost, a phantasma, a phantom. Once they find out who he is, that changes. And what is the difference between knowing what you're working with and not knowing what you're working with? I think the difference is huge. And it has everything to do with the, the way we look at fear and what it means. The storm they could understand. To an extent, right? These are seasoned fishermen. They know what to do with that. You've watched these shows on TV where these people will, will do crazy things. Or, or uh, the, the heart of the sea. The people that would... These whalers in Nantucket. Who f- didn't feel like they belonged on land anymore. They'd spent so much time at sea. The rest of the world would say, you're crazy. But there was this understanding, I suppose, that would cover or mask their fear such that it wasn't the same for them. Uh, A storm, its power, its capacity for destruction was familiar trouble to these men. And I think the same is true with us at times. Um, I was thinking about it, a way to explain this. Right before we went on our uh, trip to Nashville, I had some problems with my truck that I was going to drive to Nashville and didn't have a big window of time to get it fixed. It had to do with one of my wheels on the front locking up and I got the rotor nice and hot, stunk real bad and it felt like I was riding my brakes and it scared me. You know why it scared me? Because that's going to cost money. (laughs) So I'm in my head going, well, it could be the caliper. It's probably a hundred bucks. Uh, might have warped the rotor. That's another hundred bucks, probably. Could be the brake hose if it's going bad. Could be a stuck piston. Could be the whole brake system. So I'm in my head running down. How bad this is going to hurt? When and how much of it can I fix myself? So I'm still in somewhat of control with this problem. I'm afraid of right. Some things we don't have any control over. Uh, things that go wrong with our bodies. Some medicine can work like a mechanic. It's a mechanical problem. Sometimes it's an electrical problem. If you know with autos, that's a way tougher thing to diagnose. Same in our bodies. So when you've got some reference point for this, then that's completely different. But a ghost? Any of you have a reference point for a ghost? Oh, I'm... We talk to ghosts all the time. No big deal. (laughs) No. A ghost throws every bit of your reference point out the window. You can't plan around a ghost. You, You don't know what's going to happen. If the waves come into the boat, the boat will sink. But it's made of wood, so maybe you can get a piece of it and float on it long enough for the storm to calm. And you'll dog paddle to the shore. There's hope, right? But a ghost, is he going to kill you? Is he going to take you to Atlantis? You don't know because that doesn't fit in reality. So these men are petrified. And a good place, I guess, to ask a question here is, when is the last time you stood in the presence of the glory of God and trembled because it did not compute with anything you've ever come across? You see, that's when we get to the place where we're out of control. Uh, We're very limited in the presence of this. 
When I was a kid, there were certain things I was afraid of. And we all have things we were afraid of when we're kids, right? My brothers and sisters liked watching spooky stuff on TV way before I did. And they would let me know that. The Incredible Hulk, I think, was the worst. And not when he was green, but when the man would switch over. To me, that scared me to death. And uh, I remember one of the things that was helpful with me to get over that was when Mr. Rogers, remember that show? And Mr. McFeely actually went to see uh, the man put on his makeup. And I thought, well, it is. It's just makeup. That's, uh, that's no big deal at all. These are actors. It's, it's just a weightlifter named Lou Ferrigno. I can deal with this. But there's one type of movies I've never gotten used to, and I don't ever watch them ever. They're not about monsters. They're about demons. You know why I don't like that? Because I think they're real. And I've seen even God's men get their heads handed to them, so to say, for messing with something that's a lot bigger than they were. So what I think this is saying is there are some times when we should be afraid. Right? And we're not. And then there are times where we're afraid and we shouldn't be. That's the second point. Because what does Jesus say? It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, who just scared them? Jesus did. And then who just told them not to be? Jesus did. So we would be missing the point if all we looked at here was Jesus trying to tell his men, hey, it's me. You know, we just fed 20,000 people. That's not what he's saying. This is a claim of deity. In fact, the words here, ego, me, are the same two Greek words that we use to translate the Hebrew words in the Old Testament where he says, I am. I am that I am. Remember that? Grand claim of deity. So think about it. The creator of the universe, the one who ordered every atom, okay? In the entire cosmos, there's no such thing as one single maverick molecule against his grand plan. Ghosts? He has not just reference point for that, but control over that. And he says, don't be afraid. I've got it all under control. So perhaps what is this between the afraid, don't be afraid? I'm God and you're not. I control these things and you don't. You've been in darkness, I have light. You need me is what you need. And when you've got me, you'll be all right. Because I'll take care of you. He says, don't fear, it is I. So which is it? Is he scary? Is he not scary? Well, sometimes we're afraid when we shouldn't be. Sometimes we're afraid when we should be. Because they're both backwards. It's both. Most times, when we talk about fear or what we're afraid of, We're talking about a thing or an object or a person that we would normally run away from if we had the option, right? We don't want anything to do with any of those things that make us afraid. In the case of our Lord, it's exactly the opposite. 
And that's quite mysterious at times. So, your third point. First point was sometimes we're not afraid when we should be. Second point, sometimes we're afraid when we shouldn't be. Number three, Jesus can take our fear and draw us near to himself. He uses even that. Verse 17 of John 3, right after the most famous verse in all of the Bible. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he, the world might be saved through Him. He's our Savior. And just like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, He's not a tame lion. So those children had access to Him. He was approachable, but never past a certain point of respect. And then the last part, as far as the drama of the story, they were glad to take him into the boat. Wouldn't you say? Okay, we know it's Jesus now. Come on in the boat. Let's get this over with. But that's not the entire story. And this is where, even though I tried my best to leave Mark and uh, Matthew out of this and let John tell the story, well, there's one part in Mark's account that does sound a lot like something John has already been talking about. He's given us a heads up about this quite a bit. And if you read from his account, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. I'm sure they were. For they did not understand about the loaves. Well, that was still sinking in, and that would be difficult the next day with the whole bread of life story. And the whole multitude is not going to understand. And most of them are not going to follow him anymore afterward. We'll get into that in the weeks to come. But the last thing Mark says is, But their hearts were hardened. Now, if you're paying attention here, you might say, Okay, we're not afraid when we should be at times. And then there are times where we should be afraid, or are afraid, and we shouldn't be. Um, and the purpose of both of those is for Jesus to draw us near to himself. Well, he isn't doing too good of a job of this if, uh, after it's all over, Mark says, their hearts are hardened. That doesn't sound like Jesus is drawing them closer to himself. Maybe they don't like being scared in the boat in the middle of the night after a long day of feeding 5,000 men and their families. Maybe they think, well, tomorrow we'll have to ditch the crowd again or you'll teach to them all. It's hard to put ourselves completely in the shoes or in the minds of these men, but their hearts are hardened. So what do we do with this? Well, I think sometimes we want so bad to put our salvation experience and hang it all on one point in our lives where we made this decision. And that was the click. When, when we changed our minds about God, everything changed in our lives. When in Scripture, it's hard for us to ever see anything quite like that. It looks like to us, you be the judge, that Jesus working with his disciples is not a whole lot unlike you working with your kids when you raise them, right? How many of you just at some point, they got to, I don't know, four and a half or five years old, and they just, you know what, Mom and Dad, you're right. And I'll be obedient for, from here on out. I'm not going to fight with my brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm not going to you know, leave stuff laying around. I'll eat all the food that you cook. And I'll say it's great. 
Is that how we raise our kids? None of mine are that way. <laughs> Maybe some of yours were. And some are easier than others, right? And they all have their own teaching style. Is this what Jesus is doing with his disciples? Is he, is he training them? Is he building them? Is he growing them? Is he revealing himself to them a piece at a time as they can take it? Well, just so we don't leave it all here. What about Peter as an example? Okay, being drawn to the Lord through fear and doubt and other things. Well, he's the one that walked on the water, wasn't he? How, how'd that go? Pretty good to start with. Then what happened? Took his eyes off Jesus. What happened? Started to sink. Took Jesus' hand. They both get in the boat. So Peter had to learn a little more of this lesson than the rest of them. They like to watch Peter. And if you've got more than a few kids, there's usually one who will try everything. The rest watch. But then what happens to Peter? At the end, by the end of chapter 6, he's the one who, when Jesus says to him, while everybody else is walking off, you're all going to go too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of life. Sounds like he's being drawn closer. That's good. And then he confesses Christ as the Son of God at, at uh, Caesarea Philippi. No one could have said it. Jesus said, you didn't get that from flesh and blood. My Father revealed that to you. This is working, it seems. But then before that conversation over, he's telling him to get behind him as Satan. Because he said something that flesh and blood did reveal to him. That doesn't have anything to do with God's plan. So is he going further away? And then there's that whole misunderstanding at the transfiguration. You remember when Jesus, for three of his disciples, not the rest, even more of a private miracle to show himself to these men. And Peter says, let's build three tabernacles. And Jesus has to say, Peter, that's not what this is for. What I just showed you is where we're going. We're not going to stay here. We don't live here. We don't build little memorials to think about stuff in the past. We're, we're going into the future, into eternity. He missed that one. And then what happened in the upper room was time to wash the disciples' feet. Don't wash my feet. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you're not in this with me. Oh, okay, give me a bath. Well, you don't need a bath. We've already been to that point. But you do need your feet washed. And then before the dinner is over, one of you will deny me. I won't. I'll go to death with you. And then he has to look this guy as a parent into the face of a child and say, you don't know what's coming tonight. The darkest night you'll ever remember. And you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. No, I won't. Yeah, you will. No, I won't. And then at the end, after the crucifixion, what does Peter do? He goes fishing again. Because that's what he did before. His life's ruined, at least the best part of it. That man's dead. So him and some other guys go. But then he sees him standing on the shore this time, right? And then he jumps in the water and swims over because there's, there's something he's got to work out with this man. And then the others seem to be over on the side. And it's Jesus and Peter. And he begins to ask him those three questions. Same question three times. Do you love me? And he seems aggravated with it. Yeah. It's probably hard to say because he hadn't acted like he did. Ask him again. Do you love me? You know I love you. 
same response, feed my sheep, which is basically saying, get back to work, Peter. This isn't all over. You hadn't messed it up or thrown it away. The reason why I'm here is the same reason we need to tell the rest of the world. So let's get busy. They ask him one more time, and he seems more frustrated than ever. You know all things. You know that I love you. So what is he doing with him? He's building him up. Sometimes it requires being scared half to death. Sometimes it requires being broken half to death. Sometimes it requires seeing miracles, all sorts of things. But the question I think that this miracle asks, not the crowd, but the followers of Jesus. Are you just impressed with Jesus? Or do you trust Jesus? Because I think that's the difference. Because there's a whole crowd of people who are very impressed with him. They want to turn him into a king. And Jesus goes to the mountain to pray because it would be real easy to bypass that cross and just set up shop as a miracle worker. He'd be set for life. For eternity, really. The whole world could come to him and he'd fix their problems. But that's not why he's here. He's here not to fix problems, but to pay your sin debt. Where's your sin? Give me your sin. That's why I'm here. Being impressed with him doesn't cover that. You have to trust him for that. To give him your sinfulness, to let him be God and you be a nobody. To take his righteousness for your own so that when you stand before your creator, you actually have standing instead of under the curse from the Garden of Eden because of your sin? Are you only impressed with Jesus or do you trust Jesus? That, I believe, is the question of this passage. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your patience in working with your created beings, man and woman, Lord, we're thankful that you don't just give us one little chance and if we fail to see what you're saying, that's it. But you not only left heaven to come down here, you'd walk across a a stormy lake to on purpose misrepresent yourself to these men to build their strength, to see you as you are. Lord, may we never be surprised at the links that you'll take to show us who you are. And may we be willing to answer in trust and belief. You love the world so much that you came as God's son so that whoever believes may have life. We thank you for these things. We ask this in your name. Amen.